Hey guys, Jack here. To those of you who listen to the announcements each week, thank you. Uh, but if you're like me and you skip the first minute and a half of any podcast, uh, you may not have heard about our upcoming events, and we have some important announcements concerning those events uh, that we're actually going to replay at the end of the episode. So if you're listening to this right now, uh, you're welcome to listen again at the end or just cut out early and get back to studying hand ranges and such. We have an exciting month of December at Just Hands. We're doing our New York Live League Finder event December 9th and 10th in the New York area, and on December 16th and maybe December 17th, we'll be doing a Live League Finder event at the Bike Casino in LA on the Live at the Bike set. We're starting to get short on seats and want to get a final headcount soon, so if you're interested, I recommend signing up this week or reaching out with any questions ASAP. We really think these events are the best coaching service we offer, both in terms of growing as a player and having fun. What makes these events unique is the amount of information we have to comment on your game. Not only can we see what you bet, but we can see how you bet, what information you should have gleaned from the table at the point of the bet, and see how your opponent is behaving physically. Essentially, it's the nuts and terms of getting to know you as a player quickly to help you improve. If you're available for either of those weekends, I highly suggest checking out our website to learn more about the event packages. You can head to justhandspoker.com or use the links in the show notes. All right, guys, thank you so much, and enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Zach. Hello, Jack. How are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Enjoying this beautiful, warm-ish Bay Area weather. How about yourself? Oh, man. Winter's, winter's coming. It's bleak out here. I'm in New York City, and uh, we're having our first 30-degree day tomorrow, so looking forward to that. Better news than that, we have an awesome guest here. Zach, why don't you give him a proper introduction? Yeah, this is the creator, founder, executor of the Smart Poker Study podcast and website. Someone we probably should have had on the podcast a little bit earlier, who, like us, is you know dedicated to helping people you know in, improve at playing poker and focuses more on you know the games that most of us play, which are you know more low stakes. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Sky. Absolutely. Thanks, guys, for having me. I do appreciate it. I've been listening to you for some time, so uh, this is pretty cool being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. So I've heard you have some live hands for us today. Let's hear it. I do. Yeah, I do. When you guys contacted me, you know, my normal realm is the uh, the online realm, and when you contact me, I know you guys talk live poker, um, you know, well, live tournaments and cash. And so it was it was a challenge for me to get my butt out of the house and get down to the local card room. But, you know, thanks to you, I finally did. It. And I was really happy I did because um, uh, when I got there, it was a, a Sunday at three thirty in the afternoon or three o'clock in the afternoon. And there was only three tables going. Uh, and crazy enough, I don't know how what kind of games they have in the card rooms you guys play at. But uh, there was actually a four eight pot limit i'm sorry no four eight limit hold'em game high low and uh four eight limit uh four eight limit omaha game is what i mean to say high low and then a four eight limit game a uh, limit hold'em game and do you guys at your card rooms do they still have limit games yeah i think most of the card rooms i've been to recently have some if not many uh, mm. limit games and uh, yeah omaha high low seems to be fairly common Although I can't say that I've played many of them. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, same. I've I've never played like a three six or four eight game, but I haven't I don't think I've been to a casino uh that doesn't have at least one of those games running. Those seem to be pretty popular. It's pretty easy to limit your losses 
in those games mm-hmm. compared to like a no limit game where it can kind of lose it all quickly. That that seems like a good game where if you kind of want to play live poker, but you know don't really ha- like don't really want to risk losing hundreds of dollars or maybe not super confident in your poker skill, but like just want to have a good time. I think that provides a valuable service, but being able to beat a game with such high rake at such low stakes is, is basically impossible to my understanding. I would agree with you there. That's, I broke my, I don't know. I cut my teeth in those games, uh, back in, you know, Oh four, Oh five, Oh six, somewhere around there. And it was really tough to beat them. I felt really lucky on the days when I was able to walk away with just 40 or $60 in profit, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, especially like a game like, PLO eight or sorry, not PLO eight, but Omaha high low where so often pots are being chopped and with such a low limit relative to the rake. Yeah. It's really, you have to be very good before you can see any kind of profit. And I think easily, almost certainly if you have the skill to beat those games, it's not worth playing them. Yeah. Yes. That's what I would say. But totally. I would agree with you there. So um, when I walked in, I saw three tables going, those two, and then the one three no limit game. And um, I'm used to playing one two limit, no limit at a different card room, but jumped on one three. And then this table was my first time ever playing with a rock. So there was a six dollar rock on the table. Whoever won the pot kept the rock. But with the rock in play, it kind of functioned as a one three six game. Right. And so. I went in there pl- expecting to play a 1-2 no-limit game, and it ended up being 1-3-6. So my $400 roll I took with me quite, you know, wasn't quite enough. But um, looking around the table, I had about 20 minutes to watch the table before my name was called to take a seat. And it was full of loose passive players. Like, all nine of the players, once I sat down, all nine of the players were loose passive. Some players would raise occasionally, but for the most part, um, you know, people were getting to the flop, or hands were getting to the flop five or six ways $12 pre-flop from everybody or just six or occasionally $15. So tons of loose passive players, which I would have loved to have found one of these tables on ACR um, or carbon, my online games. But uh, you know, online there's just a bit more aggressive players at the tables, but live super, super loose passive. I loved it a, a bit more. Yeah. I think it's almost comparable, <laughs> especially when you're talking about the lowest stakes offered on both. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. It was great. And so it made it a pretty fun experience. But I, I have to admit, I'm normally a tight, aggressive player uh, where I do come in with a lot of raises, come in with a lot of three bets. But when I was sitting at this table surrounded by loose, passive players, their play just rubbed off on me. And I started limping in and just calling six dollars and twelve dollars just about every single hand that I did come in. I raised to twenty dollars a couple of times and then uh, ended up uh, you know, get into the flop three or four ways and then just completely whiffing and then folding the hand. So after that happened three times, I just kind of fell in line with the rest of the table and got in pretty cheap. Does Is is there any merit, do you guys think, to being the lone aggressive guy pre-flop with making decent two bets and three bets? Or should you normally just come along and fall in line with the rest of the table pre-flop? So you, you definitely shouldn't come in line with the table and just play passively pre-flop. There's definitely a lot of value to be had in sometimes, you know, calling and limping hands. You definitely want to be doing some level of that. I think in a game like this, it would be silly to only have a raising range. But to not have a raising range where you're, you know, getting value with a, you know, tighter, strong range than what everyone else is limping in and then calling uh, would just be leaving a lot of money on the table from my experience. 
Yeah, I agree with you there. Those hands that I was raising, pocket tens, ace-king, and ace-queen, those were the three best hands I got the whole day for the three hours that I played. And they're totally worth raising, so I came in early position and middle position with those. But then when you get at three or four callers and you completely whiff with the flop, it's just... It's often check folding time on the flop, especially because they're such loose passive calling stations. All the players were. Yeah, this right. type of and game, you're going to make your money basically just like raising a strong, tight range and, you know, almost exclusively value betting post flop. And that's kind of a boring, not super interesting game to play, but that's that's how to win in that type of game. Totally. Yep. I agree with you there. So that's what I did. Um, just kind of came along and. Tried to see as many hands in position pre-flop as I could, and I was the plan was to go for value post-flop. Uh, so as I was playing, I lost a few hands. I started with a two hundred dollar buy-in, which is, which was a little bit more than most of the players at the table. Most of the players had a stack between one hundred and two hundred dollars, even though it was like a basically a one three six game. So start off with 200, lost $100 here and there in some small pots, bought back in, added up 100 bucks, and I was up to 215 hands or $215, which is um, you know less than 40 big blinds. But then, then I got dealt a really good, really lucky hand that I want to talk about and see if there's a better way to get value out of this hand. So I was on the button, and I was dealt jack four of diamonds. There were three limpers ahead of me. They all put in six bucks, so I limped behind, you know. Um, so both well, the blinds- let's, let's, oh. let's stop there for a second. Mm-hmm. I, I think, although, of course, we're still going to comment on the post-flop play, I think Jack and I would almost certainly agree that this should definitely just be a fold. While you're definitely going to have, like, uh, a skill edge in position, this hand is just way too bad and dominated way too often for when you're only 40 big blinds deep for you to play this hand profitably. If players were really terrible and super, super loose passive and you're like 300 big blinds deep, I could definitely get get behind the limp on the button assuming you have a skill edge and like we'll know that you could, you know, stack someone for 200 plus big blinds with a worse flush. Like mm-hmm. in kind of that really rare scenario, I can get behind a limp, but in this case, you're just going to, you know, you just have a really bad hand and no real skill edge can kind of overcome that given how short you are. So I think one thing that can be confusing about this situation is that like if it had folded to us and we had Jack four suited on the button, we would definitely be, I would think raising. Uh, And I think that would definitely be correct. But I think you have to recognize that this is a vastly different situation for a couple of reasons. One is that you're not giving yourself an opportunity to win pre-flop. When you open on the button, you're expecting a lot of times to just win right there. And that's a huge part of the value of raising a hand like Jack for suited. Also, when you're opening on the button, especially if there's not, you know, maybe more than one limper, you're expecting to be heads up a lot of the times that you do see a flop. And when you're heads up with a hand like Jack for suited, there's a lot more value in hitting a four, hitting a jack, or making a flush draw. When you're likely going to see the flop six ways, uh, there's really not much value in anything anything worse than two pair that you make with your hand. You're not going to be very confident putting in money with a jack, uh, even on a jack-high sort of rainbow flop. And because of that, and because you're going to... One, you're going to hit two pair or better very rarely. And two, even when you do... You're really going to be in great shape. Like even on like a Jack Nine Four board, there are definitely hands in everybody's range that beat you, and hands that you have beat have reasonable equity. Like a hand like King Jack has 
reasonable equity against Jack four on a Jack nine four uh, rainbow board. So yeah, I think it can be confusing because we would have played this hand without thinking about it very much had it folded to us on the button. But here, I think you should just be folding. I completely understand. If if this were in my normal live realm, I would never play Jack four suited in this fashion. Um, but I, I have to admit that I was coming along and just kind of doing what the rest of the table was doing. And I was getting a little bored folding a ton of like offsuit stuff that I just wanted to play a hand. In. But I totally agree. This is the kind of hand that I can lose my full stack with uh, on the wrong or the right, however you want to look at it type of flop. Yeah. And I think so. One, in our analysis, we rarely include fun EV, which is like, you know, when you're playing one, two, the fun of it really does start to factor in. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think you're losing more than, you know, two or maybe three dollars on this call, which is, you know, a lot for like a six dollar investment to be losing <laughs> two or three dollars right away. But, you know, like the fun of that might get you close to like a, a zero EV decision. Anyway, all, the, the main reason that we, we want to discuss this is that we get a lot of hands written into us of people in similar games, in similar spots, some of which we featured on the podcast uh, of people playing hands like this and getting into very tricky spots. And I think one, most of the spots aren't tricky because you just flop a horrible hand. And even when you do flop something good, you can end up in some tricky spots since it's hard to make a really, really great hand with Jack four. Um, Jack, I think you're forgetting about something very important, though. Uh, it's not. It's not just fun equity. There's podcast equity, and I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think. I, th I think he's. I think he smashed the podcast equity here. Yeah. Had a very profitable call pre-flop. Uh, well played, Sky. Let's see. Well, let's see what happens. Thank you very next. much. Podcast equity is why I play any two cards, basically in any game. Um, awesome. Yeah. There you go. Gives you plenty to talk about. Plenty of fun. Totally. Man, Zach, I lost with seven three offsuit again. What's happening? Yep, yep. All right, so I called on the button with the Jack-4 suited and basically was a limp behind for $6. And uh, the two buttons came along, or the two blinds came along, as well as the rock just checked his his option right there. So it was seven ways to the flop, and $42 in the pot minus the $6 rake makes it a $36 pot. And the flop comes down, the incredibly fortunate for me, 10-4-4. Four, four. Remember, I had the Jack-4, so yeah. I flopped trips. And so I just, I was loving that flop. I wasn't scared of anything. I was just looking, how can I get the max value here? Um, that was the first thing then from my mind. And then the big blind, who ends up being the villain in the hand, he bets 15 into 36, a tiny little bet right there. And then there ends up being one caller before it gets back to me on the button um, with uh, two people folding, I think, in between, or maybe three people folding. I don't remember exactly. But the pot is $66 when it comes to me. And I think to myself, what is the best way to get value? I know that these players in general at this table are loose passive. Now, the villain who made the bet, the uh, the big blind villain who made the bet, he is actually um, like a fill-in player. He works for the casino, and he was there to make sure the table, you know, always has enough players to keep the action going and, and anything. And I just knew that because I saw him walking around basically doing work, and then he right. got, you know, one of the floor managers told him to come in. But in general, I don't know anybody. I don't know a single player. I've seen these dealers before, but that's about it. So I don't know how the play and how they play. And the fact that the villain just decides to bet $15 on a hard to hit 10 4 4. There were two clubs out there, 10 of clubs and the four of clubs. He could easily have 
just a random 10 and is wanting to bet at it, hoping to just take it down, getting the over cards to fold. He could have a four and is going for some kind of a value, but my Jack is a decent kicker. I, so I wasn't scared of him beating me with a four. And um, I guess he could have had a couple of clubs as well, or even an under pair, like eights or sevens or something that just wanted to test it and throw out 15 bucks to try to win uh, the $36 pot. But when the other opponent called, then I thought that person could have some kind of a draw, a top pair hand, something worth calling another bet. So I decided to raise it forty dollars. Let's uh, let's stop there for a second, Sky. Okay. What yeah. what, what what type of was there a flush draw on board? Did I did I miss that? There was well two clubs, ten of clubs, four two of clubs. clubs. Okay, cool. So so there there are flush draws possible. What <laughs> what who's the effective stack in this scenario? The effective stack would be the big blind who, if I remember accurately, they had roughly $70 or so. The other player that made the call had right around 120. I don't, you know, I wasn't paying super close attention to everybody's stacks, but it was right around 120. And I had the most at roughly 200 pre-flop. Okay. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think in this scenario, I'm almost definitely going to want a flat call behind where you're going to have no trouble getting value from a four. Mm-hmm. And I think just raising in this spot, especially if you've been playing pretty loose and passive and on the tighter side so far, is just you know very unlikely to get a call. And generally in these games, correct me if I'm wrong, Sky, people are incredibly loose and passive to kind of like $15 bets on the flop and to raise his pre-flop, but then are often fairly tight in terms of like putting in their stack post-flop. Is, is, that, is that roughly accurate? For the most part, I did um, during the first hour and then the 20 minutes before I sat down, I was observing the table. I saw a lot of bets and raises with top pair, like top pair, top kicker, as well as two pair or better. And I saw a ton of people calling good sized bets with like top pair weak kicker. And then so they were calling pretty darn loose. So I thought with my raise, I could get calls out of random tens, out of random top pair hands that just didn't believe that I had a four. Or they think that I have some kind of a flush draw myself and I'm trying to bluff them off the hand. Yeah, I think it just depends on, on your image. And based on what you said so far, I think that's a little ambitious. But, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's hard to say. My, my instinct is that just kind of calling, especially because you're in position, so you'll be able to see what they do, you know, on the turn. And, like, mm-hmm. given the big line only has $70 behind after this $15 bet, like, they could very much just, like, shove a lot of turns and maybe with a good 10 they'll feel empowered to do that but i could definitely see a type of player like at these stakes betting out with like a decent 10 and talking himself into a fold when you raise versus getting two calls and there being a blank on the turn and that person shoving or by calling you you know the person you know someone could maybe hit two pair like i think there's just a lot of good things that happen happen when you when you flat call in position here if you were out of position i think it'd be a different story but yeah, my, my, my feeling is to is to flap behind. Jack, what do you think? I'm personally more open to the raise. I actually like I actually like what Sky did a lot. I think this is kind of like it's sort of a silly it's really a silly spot, honestly. Because <laughs> you know, anytime like six players at the table put in what's probably about fifteen percent of their stack pre flop, <laughs> like you're 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 talking about some silly poker. Totally. So I think continuing with the silliness of it, putting in this sort of baby raise such that like, you know, I think if we shove here, which is, you know, in a more serious game, is something I would consider doing. 
sorry. So yeah, I think if we shoved here, then yeah, I think lots of tens would fold. But I think when we raised a forty, we're making it twenty-five more dollars. And well, I, d I didn't raise it to forty. I raised it to fifty-five, so I made it forty more. Ah, uh, is what okay. I did. So I think I would prefer flat calling to raising it to fifty-five. Mm -hmm. But I kind of like making this like tiny little raise. Mm. I think almost all tens, fours, and draws will call. And I think a 10 that folds to 40 here wasn't super likely to put in more money if you know they got two callers. I don't I don't think that's a super it's definitely possible, but I don't think it's a super likely scenario that someone would have that behavior exactly with a 10. So I like just getting in most of the money now. And then you can basically just shove any turn card. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I guess maybe not a 10, but yeah, any I, other turn like, card makes sense to shove with this with the pot so big already. Uh, by just me making a smaller call uh, or a, a smaller raise, then the other two players, if they both came along to my raise, are probably committed at that point with any pair. I would think so. Mm -hmm. And I think like another thing that is maybe we haven't discussed yet is that even if a player like who has even if the big one has ten nine. And maybe we'll fold to that little raise of 40 uh, and would have put in more money if like a offsuit deuce hits on the turn. Like, would they also put in more money if a, you know, offsuit queen hits on the turn? Mm -hmm. I, you know, so I think I actually think our best bet to get value from tens would be to put in like a small raise now. And a 10 might even decide to shove like mm -hmm. uh, the person with the big one with $70 behind. You know, facing this baby raise might decide to just go with it, thinking that you might be on a draw. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's with stacks this short and a hand this strong, it's hard to go wrong. There's nothing bad you can do, really. I think shoving would probably be a mistake, since I think that's the best way to get tens to fold. Mm -hmm. So I think flat calling is fine, but I actually like a small raise. Gotcha. It makes sense. I like that reasoning definitely as well. I think a small raise would get at a minimum that big blind opener. If I made it, like you said, $48, 25X, or he's getting such good odds with the 10. If he doesn't choose to shove, he's calling. And then the other player that was still in, if they had a club draw uh, or flush draw, um, then they're most likely calling as well because of that sweetened pot because the big blind called. Yeah, yeah I, if, I can, if a I flush draw somehow folded, raise. that'd be great. I, I'm sorry, you guys overlapped. I can't yeah, say. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was going to say, I, I can get behind the smaller raise. I, I still feel like flatting the position is probably going to be a little bit better, but you know, I, I definitely like the reasoning behind uh, making a small raise in the spot. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think I prefer the smaller raise too. I think 55 was just a bit much. I might have been just a little bit excited to flop such a killer hand against two kind of passive opponents, and I was just trying to maximize my value here. You know. Yeah, I think like lot. I think when we raise here, we're always putting stacks in play. But if we can disguise that fact by raising smaller, I think that's to our advantage with such a strong hand. That makes uh, total sense. I love it. All right, so I raised to that fifty-five, and the big blind villain makes the call. And like I said, he only had seventy bucks at the time, so he was really left with just fifteen dollars behind. I don't know why he just didn't ship it. <laughs> Maybe he wanted the other player to come in to sweeten the pot in case he hit a flush draw, or if he did have a ten, catch another ten and make a bigger, get a bigger pot with a flush. I don't know what his why he didn't put it in, but 
he just called and then the first caller folded to my $55 bet or the raise to 55. So it goes heads up to the turn with only $15 behind. And the total pot at this point is $161. Um, so, you know, there's no way this isn't getting to showdown at this point. So the turn comes in offsuit five. He checks and, you know, I'm not afraid of anything. I just put in 20 bucks and he calls his 15. So we're both all in. The river comes in offsuit six. And I've I've always I've always subscribed to Tommy Angelo's show fast theory or whatever it's called, where if he believes he has the winning hand, he just shows and and he never tries to make his opponent show their hand or, you know, show first if he called. So I just kind of showed my hand and then um, he just he just mucked his hand. So my guess is he had a 10 or just whiffed a whiffed a club draw. Yeah, and, yeah, that, and one thing about Tommy's thing, it, it's you show your hand fast whether you think you have the winning hand or not. You show your hand fast yeah. when it's your turn to show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do that every single time. And and part of the reason I do that is just because I don't like to, uh, you know, I don't like to accidentally slow roll people. And if I have the best, I might as well show. And if he, if he, if if I ended up or if he called my raise, it's my turn to show anyway. So I just I show fast every time. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I only intentionally slow slow roll people. I don't want to do it by accident. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got you. Awesome. So yeah, I ended up winning that hand and that brought me up to like $300. My, my full, you know, I lost a hundred dollars in that first hour. So I was up to my full buy-in there Nice. out of my full stack at that point. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I do like the idea of the smaller race for sure. Yeah. I'll definitely keep that in mind. I like what you said, Jack, about, um, how that smaller hand we're, we're playing for stacks by making the raise. Like I'm ready to commit, commit my stack, but the smaller raise kind of hides that fact. And I love that. I think it was you that said it right, Jack. Yeah. Okay. And I, so one other thing about this game that we, I didn't get a chance to say about the preflop play mm-hmm. is that with stacks like you're describing and players like you're describing, I would be much more aggressively raising, I would be raising to larger sizings since raising a strong range, a much stronger range than your opponents are going to be calling with when stacks are really deep is very advantageous. You're going to be able to profitably stack off a ton, even when your hand doesn't improve or like if you if like one overcard comes out you're still gonna have the best of it so often that you won't have really bad reverse implied odds against like a top pair of hand that's not exactly the right term but the point is uh, i would be thinking raising larger than you're used to online for sure because if we can narrow the field then we'll get to exploit our skill edge even more and Definitely, I'd be looking to three bet a lot, potentially three bet shove if the people in the hand are short enough to try and get all the money in pre flop while we still have such a big range advantage. Yeah, makes total sense. I like it. I found that the $20, as I was observing the table and playing, $20 seemed to be the pain threshold, but. And those three times I did race to 20 bucks, I got three or four callers each time. And so, or two or three callers each time. So it did make it tough. Maybe the pain threshold was more like four big blinds, you know, up to 24, $25 would have been a better raise. Yeah. I think like, depending on how many limps I would be thinking four X plus limps at a minimum in these types mm-hmm. of games. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Um, totally. Yeah. So, so straddle to the six, I would 
probably just start out at 25. No sense dealing with $1 chips when you don't have to. Yep, totally. I agree with you there. If I the next time I do go play in this game uh, uh, with the six dollar rock, I'm definitely upping it to twenty five dollars with my good hands. And then I like I like your idea of four times or four big blinds plus one per limber. Yeah, and it's the rock should lower the value of the pot, but people aren't going to treat it like that. Like the rock's not actually worth six dollars. No, but, it's not. But everybody plays like it is, so yeah, I've got to I've got to treat it like it is, you know. Yeah. If, mm-hmm. if you want, and generally we, we do want folds from early position, like our EV of when we get everyone to fold versus like when we have in position callers is generally higher when everyone folds, uh, even in these games where players are pretty bad. Totally, totally. Yep, yep. Cool. Uh, well, Sky, thank you so much for the hand. And Zach, uh, you want to start out with some questions? Yeah. So, Sky, how long have you been doing your podcast for, and, and you know what what motivated you to start that? I've been doing it for a year and a half now, or well, almost two years. I started in January of 2016, and then so what motivated me was well, I had a poker blog for one thing, but the big motivation was just I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts all day long when I used to have an office job and um, sitting there just learning poker from podcasts, but not only that being entertained by comedy podcasts and, and learning from like educational podcasts. So I just loved the medium. And with the blog, I found that I'm not much of a writer. I don't enjoy writing. It's not something I like to do. I was doing weekly blog posts and stuff, but it just, it wasn't me, you know? And I figured I love podcasts and I love poker and I love teaching poker and sharing my thoughts and opinions on, on poker. So why not just start up a podcast and so bam i just went and did it i started by creating three podcasts released them all the first day you know i follow the whole john lee dumas um podcast you know podcast launch kind of theory um did three and then i did one a week and then all of a sudden i said screw it i'm going to do 30 days of podcasting and i did 30 days of podcast one after another and that was a ton of work um uh, cause it takes anywhere from four to six hours, even eight hours sometimes for me to put a podcast together. But it was basically just a love of podcasting and a love of poker and a love of wanting to share with the, uh, the poker world that got the podcast started. Yeah, that's really awesome. What are, uh, what are some of your favorite podcasts in poker and outside of poker? Uh, well, my, two of my favorite pod, uh, poker podcasts are the, the one outer podcast with Alec Fitzgerald and Barry Chalmers. I really enjoy that one. Um, I learned a ton from Alex over the years. I, I started off as an MTT and a sit and go player. So all of his coaching and stuff is really has really helped me out. His videos and the podcast and everything. And the second one is um, Dr. Trisha Cardner's podcast. Uh, gosh, darn it. Uh, Poker on the Mind. Do you guys know that podcast? Loosely. I mean, we've had Trisha on the show. Yeah, uh, it's I just I can't think of the name right now. How terrible is that? Let me open up my iTunes. Yeah, uh, his name is Gareth James. That's it. Gazelig is his name. Yeah, so Dr. Trisha Carner, along with um, Gareth James, they do a weekly podcast where she talks or she answers a question along the mental game or the mental side of poker, and then he answers a tournament-related question. So it's just a really good podcast. They do it weekly. And I guess a third podcast would be the Red Ship Poker Podcast with uh, uh, Zach Shaw often does those episodes, but occasionally you'll get James Sweeney on it as well, along with other Red Ship coaches. Great. Those are some uh, slightly more off the path 
poker podcast answers. What about uh, outside of poker? Anything that you really love? Yeah, out, uh, when it comes to podcasts, the Adam Carolla show, that's always first on my list. So the Joe Rogan experience is always up there too. And then um, when it comes to uh, podcasts slash, I guess, not slash, I mean, just when it just basically becomes to like marketing and then promoting stuff, because of course, as podcasters, we got to promote our stuff and everything. I listen to the Gary V audio experience too. Oh yeah, for sure. And then those are, I mean, I can, oh, and my favorite, my two, or I guess three favorite comedy podcasts. Number one is a uh, um, comedy bang, bang, just love comedy bang, bang. The third one would be, I was there too, which is hosted by Matt Gorley. And basically he just interviews people who, uh, People who were in the most famous scenes, but not the main actors and famous scenes in movie history. And then the third one would be James Bonding, where Matt Gorley and Matt Myra talk about James Bond episodes and they just talk James Bond week after week. I love that one. So I think one of the great things about doing podcasts or being a podcaster is you just you're forced to learn a lot about what you're covering you know, hopefully you're making great strides to, you know, learn in anticipation of doing it, but even just in doing it, you learn a lot. So I'm curious, uh, the Smart Poker Study podcast, a lot of it is about your study, and I'm wondering what you've, uh, how have your study habits changed since starting the podcast? What are some of your most important takeaways from that process? Yeah, totally. It's a good question. Uh, the number one thing is that I'm more consistent with my studies because my studies and the things that I'm learning through my studies are what inform my podcast. So in order to make the best podcast episodes I can, I need to be pretty darn aware is not the right word. I have to have a pretty good grasp of whatever it is that I'm talking about. Right. So most recently, like I did a whole series on hand reading where it was actually five episodes just about hand reading and the hand reading process. And so in preparation for that, and while I was doing those five episodes over five weeks, I was taking part in uh, 66 days of hand reading challenge that I put out there on YouTube, where I created a different hand reading video every single day for 66 days in a row. And then so I just basically, in order to give the best podcast available or to give the best podcast I can. I just need to be consistent with my studies. I need to keep improving my game so that I can teach my listeners what I'm learning. So that's that's the number one thing. Like before the podcast, I would study I would study maybe two or three days a week at 30 minutes to an hour. But since I started the podcast on average, I am hitting five days a week at about one hour on average. Occasionally I'll do a full seven days of study. Um, but uh it's normally five days, uh, one hour per day of study I do. So for you, uh, you, I assume that you use a HUD online. Totally. How yeah, is Poker that? Poker Tracker 4. Nice. Yeah, that's what I use as well. Okay. I don't play that much online, but when I do, I use Poker Tracker. And okay. I'm curious how that tool has come in handy for you uh, in terms of your studying and your teaching. Well, when it comes to studying and teaching, the Poker Tracker 4 is just incredible because it gives you a database of hands. And when I eventually start to play more live, I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to how I'm going to study my hands. I guess it's going to be a lot of note taking and then just 
talking through hands with other people. But when you're online, you get that database of hands and you can quickly go through and you can filter for every spot that you see bet, every spot that you failed to see bet, every three bet that you made, every time you faced a three bet. And you can go through those hands and try to get a sense of what it is you're doing right and wrong. You can whip out Flopzilla and then run equity calculations in your range versus your opponent's range. Um, Poker Tracker 4 has just made studying so much easier. And I shouldn't say so much has made it so much easier. I mean, ever since I started online poker, I heard about HUDs. And since 08 or so, when I started playing online, I've been using Poker Tracker 4 since like 09 or 2010, maybe. So it's been forever. So it's I don't know any other way to study other than with Poker Tracker 4 um, and other programs like Flopzilla, you know. But when it comes to playing, uh, I do not ever play without using my HUD. So I don't play on on any other kind of sites other than because I'm in America. I play on ACR or America's Card Room and on Carbon Poker, and they both allow the use of the HUD. So it tracks my opponent's hands, and and I get to see stats on how how they often. Uh, approach various spots. I get to see how often they open the pot, how often they see bet, how often they triple barrel, all that kind of stuff. And it allows me to make some pretty good exploitative plays um, against my opponents. So that's, those are the big aspects uh, that I love about poker tracker four. Yeah. I, I personally, I agree. A big problem with improving at live poker is, I mean, one is the volume aspect. It's very hard to like collect a meaningful sample of hands in the first place just from playing secondly to actually you know it's one thing to play a meaningful sample it's another thing to keep track of a meaningful sample it's very very difficult mm-hmm. uh, i i have some students who do an exceptional job with it but most students and i think for myself included like taking that amount of notes at the table is not only very unappealing to me but also i think it takes away from takes away from my play and so you know i'm not normally playing at low enough stakes where I'm willing to give up that much of an edge uh, for the sake of note-taking. So I recommend that a lot of my students play online to to accumulate that kind of database. Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go, we'll go ahead first. And then I have a question. Yeah, I was just going to agree with you there. I've I've recommended to plenty of uh, my podcast listeners. I don't have any students that play um, live. All of my students are online players because that's my specialty. I don't want to coach live players. I don't. I'm not qualified to coach them. You know. But for the players who who email me and have questions about live play, what I really recommend is that you treat your live play sessions as you know that's your bread and butter. That's where you're making money. That's where you're focused on making the best decisions. But what you need to do is. If you're not going to keep track of all the important hands street by street with the stack sizes, at a minimum, you should keep track of the spots where you find that you feel uncomfortable, spots that you hate being in, you know, flopping top pair on a monotone board or or being out of position versus four other players with a with a baby pair, whatever the uncomfortable spot is, keep track of those and then. Figure out how to play those spots in the online realm. So if you're like one of those players at the table I was at the other day, the 136 table, start playing some 10 NL online. If you find that three betting is tough, practice your three betting online. So the stakes are a lot less costly. You can get a lot more practice in, refine those skills, work on them online, and then take them to the live felt. That's that's what I recommend for my online. I'm sorry, for my live listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly the way to do it. I'm curious, as someone who uses, so, so with uh, one of the one of the great things about HUD is you can collect statistics on yourself. But I'm curious, you know, you're doing so much studying now for the podcast. 
Have you found that those statistics have proven helpful because your game is advancing with all this study? I'm not. I'm not asking this question very well, but <laughs> my okay. point is, you know, as as you improve as a player, how useful has your you know database of six months ago, a year ago, you know, how relevant does that say to you, or is there a sort of a sweet spot of how far you look back, you know, for spots? Well, I look back. It's generally the current year that I'm in or like the prior six to eight months or so. Um, so right now, every time I look through my database, I'm looking for through my entire year. I do find that, of course, as as I'm learning, my play changes and my stats progress. You know, maybe I used to be seabedding at like 80 percent, but now I've learned to tone down my seabedding and look for a better spot. So maybe now it's like at 65 percent over time. It changes, but I can still learn a lot by if I'm studying seabed instances or seabed hands, for example, I can learn a lot from how I used to play hands when it can when it comes to seabedding. So looking at those prior hands, sure, they are helpful, but you're better off for, for my own opinion is you're better off studying hands that happened within the past four to six months. Um, not even four months, just say the past six months. And that, that is kind of the sweet spot to answer your question. I don't recommend going back a year or two years to look at your hands. Um, even looking at your opponent's hands, if if you know Bob one two three four is on your table, you don't really want to see the way he played two years ago, because he could be the exact same player, but you just don't know that. You're better off looking at the past six months, um, or even just the past ten thousand hands. If you have a ton of hands on him, you know the past ten or five thousand hands to get a good idea of how he's playing now, because. If he's playing that much with you, he's probably working on his game, and things have changed from two years ago. Yeah, man, I miss building up those kinds of uh, histories with people because mm -hmm. I, I just don't play anywhere near enough online poker to build up that kind of history with someone. I've been lucky enough to play very consistently lately in a home game near me, and so I've been developing some of the most extensive live histories I've had with players, but. Yeah, I definitely miss like, you know, being able to be picky enough to only choose the last 10,000 hands to consider. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Do you keep like an Evernote on the opponents at those tables? So you're constantly like on your phone acting like you're texting, but you're actually taking Evernote notes? No, I wouldn't want to risk someone seeing me doing that in this game. <laughs> yeah. So you just try to remember what you saw during the session. At the end of the session, you'll go home and then start typing out notes and stuff. More along those lines, yes, okay. definitely. Cool. Uh, and I might text if there's a spot I'm uncomfortable with, then I'll text, uh, you know, my network, Zach included, about those sorts of hands. Mm -hmm. Lately, I've been feeling very, very comfortable with the game. <laughs> good, good. So there haven't there haven't been as many surprises. But yeah, it no, I, it's definitely a, the sort of social element of of this type of game. I think is a large prohibiting factor for doing excessive note taking at the table, especially for me. Yeah, absolutely. It is. You know, the last two times I played live tournaments, uh, I played at the Colossus this past year and I was trying to take notes the whole time on the important hands. And it does take away from the fun, even though I don't know the players to the table, you know, I would like to participate in the chit chat and say hello and, you know, talk about, like a movie, you know, whatever. But if I'm in my notebook taking notes, it does take away from the fun. And then I bet at a, at a, so that's at a tournament where I don't know anybody. If I was playing in a ton of home games and stuff, I would never take notes at the table. That would just be, uh, that would be death. You know, they would see you as 
I mean, I don't know, even if they didn't know you were taking notes, if they thought you were just texting your buddies, you're just not being present. And and that's what you've got to be uh, at the poker table, especially when you're playing with friends. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What about you, Zach? Do you play a lot of online or are you mostly a live player as well? I'm an exclusively a live fish right now. Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it, it's been a minute since I've played online. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a home a home game, so it's kind of home tournament that I've played in a few times. They they say they do these like online cash games sometimes, which I'd be very interested in joining. But those have I have, those haven't started up yet, or at least I haven't been invited to that, to my knowledge. They um, do an online cash game, like a home game cash game online. So they yeah yeah they, they use create poker, a special table somewhere. They use Poker Stars like play for free and then just settle up ah. you know outside. That's oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah, I've heard a, I've heard a, that's been happening. I think a good amount in the New York area. That's where this game you're talking about is, right? Yeah, the New York, the New York general area. Yeah, I mean, I th- these days, most of my like relationship with poker is like personal study and like coaching students and preparing for their lessons. And then when I play, uh, it's usually like. <laughs> Two five or five ten no limit live, and then sometimes PLO. I'm going to be heading to Vegas next week, actually, and I'm excited to get the time to put in kind of two long sessions. Probably just because I'm not playing that much right now. Take it easy and go to go to my favorite spot there, the the two five no limit Caesars, a thousand cap. I usually find it's a it's pretty both fun and and soft game. Great. Well, good luck in Vegas. Yeah, thank you. So, so Sky, I wanted to ask you about something. You, you talked about how you, when you started the podcast, you had a day job, and the way you phrase it makes it sound like now you don't have have a day job. What what do you? How do you spend your time these days? Well, I um, back when I started the podcast, I worked for a restaurant company out of the corporate office. I was the office manager, and then they sold. The, the owner sold the company to another company. And so myself, along with everyone else in the corporate office, was let go. And they just transferred all the duties to whatever the new company's corporate office. So I was left without uh, without some work for a little bit of time. But then I ended up finding employment with another restaurant company where I'm kind of like a uh, an HR consultant for them. So I work anywhere from between 20 to 30 hours per week doing that currently. But I'm not... Uh, I don't have to go into the office or anything. I just work from my desk here at home, which is pretty nice. You know, uh, I, I tried making my living once as a pro player and it just didn't suit me. I can't play 40 to 50 hours a week. That's just not in me. I love the game of poker. I love playing. But when I tried to force myself to play for a living, I just got really sick of it real quick. You know, so I still need this outside job uh, to bring some income into the home to, 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 to help support the family, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. But then with, um, you know, with with the podcast, like affiliate kind of income and stuff, as well as my books, I have two books I put out there, um, you know, that's bringing in some extra money. So I'm able to uh, able to spend a little bit more time working on the poker stuff, giving, you know, free episodes and free content and doing that whole YouTube 66 days of hand reading and stuff because I'm making some money now with uh, with this whole with this whole poker coaching thing. Yeah, that's really great. Yep. It's nice to diversify. It is, for sure, without a doubt. Well, Sky, anyway, I think we've taken enough of your time. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. Would you remind everyone uh, where to find you, where to find your your free content, your not-free content, especially where can yeah. people find you? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Anywhere that you can uh, go in the social medias, you know, you can type in smart poker study, Facebook, YouTube, um, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. Um, smartpokerstudy.com is the main website. You can find the Smart Poker Study podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, basically, you know, basically anywhere that you can find podcasts, same as your guys' podcast. And then uh, in the Amazon store, I have two books. You can search for Sky Matsuhashi or just How to Study Poker Volumes 1 or Volume 2. And, um, you know, that's how you find my stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Sky, thank you again. Uh, and keep crushing, keep teaching, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Awesome. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it, both of you. Hey guys, Jack here. We have an exciting month of December just hands. We're doing our New York Live League Finder event December 9th and 10th in the New York area, and on December 16th and maybe December 17th, we'll be doing a Live League Finder event at the Bike Casino in L.A., on the Live at the Bike set. We're starting to get short on seats and want to get a final headcount soon, so if you're interested, I recommend signing up this week or reaching out with any questions ASAP. We really think these events are the best coaching service we offer, both in terms of growing as a player and having fun. What makes these events unique is the amount of information we have to comment on your game. Not only can we see what you bet, but we can see how you bet, what information you should have gleaned from the table at the point of the bet, and see how your opponent is behaving physically. Essentially, it's the nuts and terms of getting to know you as a player quickly to help you improve. If you're available for either of those weekends, I highly suggest checking out our website to learn more about the event packages. You can head to justhandspoker.com or use the links in the show notes. All right, guys, thank you so much, and enjoy this week's episode.